I've been doing a little bit of research on uh, millionaires. And it seems that millionaires are at the right place at the right time. For example, J.K. Rowling, she wrote Harry Potter. She used to work in cafes. Sam Walton, he started a little store you might know as Walmart. Walmart, just a little, just a little corner store around the back there. He used to milk cows and he sold magazine subscriptions uh, before Walmart. Steve Jobs, um, before he passed away, he started Apple Computers and he built his first computer in the garage of his home. And it just seemed like at the right place at the right time, they offered the right product or service. Now, when I say these things, I am not endorsing or selling or advertising for them. I do not expect a paycheck from Apple, though a new tablet would be nice. Now, this is similar to the story of Esther. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you might have heard the story. If you're not a Christian, you've never heard the story, you're about to find out what happened. But she's this orphaned girl. She's a Hebrew descendant. She's this orphaned girl. But she saves her entire nation. She's at the right place at the right time. Now, as Christians, we don't believe in coincidence. We don't think things just happen randomly. We think there's a purpose to it. We think there's someone behind it. We think God is behind it all. We call it providence. God is providentially in control. He is sovereign and he is in control. Things aren't accidental. They are not random. They are purposeful. Everything that happens is for a purpose. But there's also responsibility that each of us play in our lives. God is in control. He is totally sovereign totally providential but you and i also have responsibility and how do we how do we live our lives how do we make choices with our money with our time with our friends at our work do we go to church do we not we make choices as well and so what i want us to get from this message as we go through the book of esther is this one main idea that god positions his people to be used as his instruments to accomplish his purposes. Again, God positions his people to be used as his instruments to accomplish his purposes. So wherever you find yourself right now, however old you are, how smart you are, how much money you have, what school you go to or don't go to, if you're married, not married, widowed, divorced, God positions you to be there for his own purposes. We are all messed up. We have all made mistakes, and we will make mistakes. But the goodness and kindness and gracious of God chooses to use broken people like us for his own purposes. So I don't know where you come from, what your story is, but he does. And he positions his people to accomplish his good purposes. And so we're in this book called Esther. Esther is this historical book in the Bible. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, there's many different genres within the Bible. There's poetry, there's history, and there's prophets and prophecies. Here we have in the book of Esther a historical book. And it tells the story of this Jewish girl. And she became the queen of the empire of Persia at the time. And some archaeologists and scholars say that Persia at the time had 50 million 
She saved her people, the Jewish people, from complete destruction. And so Esther, I would encourage you to read it. It's in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, pick one up in the back. It's our gift to you. Or if you are, maybe go home after church, read chapters 1 to 10, and get the full context of what Esther is about. I'll just go through it briefly. And we're going to be camping in chapter 4 of the book of Esther. And so we're going to go kind of chapter by chapter, just doing summaries. We're going to champ, uh, camp on chapter 4. Sounds good? Even if it doesn't, you have really no choice. Here we go. Esther, Esther chapter 1. You have this historical book, and you, you meet this king. You may have heard of this king. His, king, his name is King Xerxes. But maybe you have a different translation, and his name is, how do you pronounce it here? Ahasuerus? Ahasuerus. That's his Persian name, but his name is also known as King Xerxes. And King Xerxes rules 127 provinces, this giant kingdom at the time, from India to Ethiopia. King Xerxes is a madman. We're going to learn about it a little bit later, but just a, a little snapshot of this king. He hired engineers to build a bridge over this little body of water. The bridge didn't turn out so good, and historians found that because the engineers didn't do a good job, he actually cut off all their heads. And he built a few buildings and some water uh, from the ocean, either damaged it or completely wrecked his buildings. So he hired people in his Persian army to whip it, like literally with a whip, whip the waves 300 times. This is, this is the thinking of Xerxes, because the waves didn't obey me. I'm King Xerxes. I will whip the waves. And actually, he, got, he hired another uh, fraction of people to get uh, hot irons and put them in a fire and poke the waves to punish the waves because they had damaged his building. So this is King Xerxes, and we're going to find that he encounters Esther. So this is a mad man. And he held this banquet in chapter 1 of Esther, this 180-day banquet for all his nobles and officials and leaders. And then he held a seven-day celebration for the rest of the people. Queen, Queen Vashti at the time, she had her own celebration for seven days as well. We read this in chapter one. And they essentially were all just getting drunk. They're having orgies. It was not a beautiful picture. And the king wanted to show off the beauty of Queen Vashti. He wanted to show off the beauty of his wife to his drunken guests at this party because they were evil. But Queen Vashti refused. She didn't want to be, well, we don't know why she refused, but she refused. And in anger, King Xerxes banished the queen. Chapter 1. Chapter 2. He puts on an empire-wide uh, bachelor show. He's looking for Cinderella, and he's holding a beauty pageant. And because he's kicked out King Vashti, he wants a new queen. And so you have 50 million people, we'll say maybe half, maybe less are women. And so 
he gets his uh, empire leaders to get all the women to do a beauty contest to see who's going to be the next queen. They need to replace Queen Vashti. And this was elaborate. I don't know if you've ever seen the show The Bachelor or Bachelorette. You don't have to admit that. I have seen it, or I've read about it at least. And so there's, a, there's in this case, The Bachelor, King Xerxes. He's looking for the, the perfect woman, love at first sight. He's looking for some very beautiful. And so... All these women come, and it's, it's so elaborate. It's, it's a year-long process where they're living on the, the royal compounds, and they're doing makeup and, and all these elaborate rituals, beauty rituals, just to get themselves pretty to please the king. And so there was this Jewish woman, a beautiful, lovely young woman that's described in in Esther, and she was adopted by her uh, cousin Mordecai. Mordecai was about 15 years older, and her name was Esther. And so when her father and mother had died, uh, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised Esther as his own daughter. And of all the women in the kingdom, I don't know if we're talking millions, hundreds of thousands, she won the contest, this horrible contest, to be queen, to be Xerxes' queen. And in chapter 2, we also learn that there was a plot to kill King Xerxes, but Mordecai, Esther's cousin, foiled that plan. That's chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 3, there's this royal official, his name is Haman, and Haman, he wants to kill Mordecai. He actually wants to kill all the Jewish people. He hates the Jewish people. And it's a centuries-old feud between his people and the Jewish people. So Haman's people and the Jewish people spend centuries, and there's this deep-seated hatred that Haman has towards the Jews. He wants to kill just Mordecai, but he can't do that. He can't do that. He's got he's to think of this plan and say, oh, I know, well, let's just, let's just kill everybody. And he brings this plan to King Xerxes. And Xerxes is like, yeah, that's cool. That's a good plan. Let's do it. And Haman's saying, well, yeah, this is a great plan because once we kill all of them, we'll take all their houses and all their stuff and we'll add it to our kingdom. Okay. Let's do it. This, this is a great idea. And so that's chapter 3. Chapter 4 is where we're going to camp. Mordecai hears of this plan that Haman has. And Mordecai requests Esther's help. Now Esther has gone from Cinderella to Queen Cinderella. She's at the top of the kingdom now. Queen Esther. She's gone from zero to royalty. There's no higher office in all the land, and Esther is in that land, is in that position. And Mordecai requests her help because the king wants to kill the Jewish people. 
Esther is also Jewish, but she has not told the king that yet. And so Haman's evil plan is stopped by a series of courageous actions by Esther and Mordecai. You can read from chapter 4 to 8, that's, that's what's happening there. Which eventually, Esther saves the entire Jewish nation. This is a story, this is a national story of the Jewish people, of God's people. And it's a rescue story in which the whole nation is saved from destruction. What does this mean for us? We'll find out after we read chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. You can turn with me, you can listen, you can follow on the screen, you can grab a Bible in the back. We're going to read all of Esther chapter (coughs) 4, starting in verse 1. When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on burlap and ashes, and went out into the city, crying with a loud and bitter wail. He went as far as the gate of the palace, for no one was allowed to enter the palace gate while wearing clothes of mourning. And as news of the king's decree reached all the provinces, there was great mourning among the Jews. They fasted, wept, and wailed, and many people lay in burlap and ashes. When Queen Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was deeply distressed. She sent clothing to him to replace the burlap, but he refused it. Then Esther sent for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed as her attendant. She ordered him to go to Mordecai and find out what was troubling him and why he was in mourning. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the square in front of the palace gate. Mordecai told him the whole story including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai gave Hathak a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all Jews. He asked Hathak to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. He also asked Hathak to direct her to go to the king to beg for mercy and plead for her people. So Hathak returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. Then Esther told Hathak to go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. So Hathak gave Esther's message to Mordecai. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. Verse 14, this is key to this entire chapter. This is key to our life. This is key to scripture. Verse 14. If you keep quiet at this time, at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen, underline this, If you were made queen for just such a time as this, bank that in your mind, verse 14 at the very end there. Continuing verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same, and then 
Though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered. So you see what's happening here in chapter 4? There's this plot to kill the Jews. Mordecai hears it, tells Esther. And Esther says, listen, there's royal protocol. I can't just go before the king if I haven't been requested. You can die, even though I'm his wife. I haven't seen him for 30 days because he hasn't requested for my appearance. It's a terrible marriage, by the way. But she could die. She's risking her life to, to, to do this. And Mordecai's like, think for a second. Your life will not be spared. They, they don't know you're Jewish, but they're going to kill you. And if they don't kill you, the Jewish people might kill you for not saving them, if there's any alive. And so she's thinking, okay, well, I need you to pray for me. I need your people to pray for me. I need you to fast. Don't eat for a time. I'll ask my, my loyalty to do the same. And she says, if I must die, I must die. And so there's this, there's this plan. What do we do? The Jewish people are going to die. What, what is happening here is more than just a national fight. It's more than just a racist encounter. What's happening here is the evil one, Satan, wants to destroy God's people, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. If they're all wiped out, Satan thinks then, then this will stop God's plan if I just eliminate his people. But God, in his appointed time, chooses an instrument by the name of Esther to be made queen at just the right time. At such a time as this. Mordecai just happened to hear the plan. Esther just happened to become queen through a tryout of over a million people in Persia, and it was her that was picked. Coincidence? To think that would be ridiculous. This is the providence of God, that he is ultimately in control and is raising up people to do his work. Who was Esther before? We don't really know. It seemed like she followed and lived just like the other women in Persia. But God, at just the right time, would do something like this. What an amazing God who would do that. Yet interestingly enough, if you're to read Esther, chapter 1 to 10, there is no explicit mention of God. There's no mention of God in the book of Esther. You can skim it now. I'll give you 35 minutes. There's no mention of God in there. But as you're reading it, clearly you're thinking there is something in control here. There's someone in control here that is not just Esther, not just Mordecai, not just King Xerxes. It is God. He's in the details. He is beside his people. He is with his people. He is working amongst his people. Esther is not the main character in this story. It's God. Esther is just a player, is just a chosen instrument of God's goodness. God showed his love toward his people. And he uses Esther, just like he can use any of us, by faith. But she had to make decisions. She had to make choices. This is a classic story of zero to hero. 
Yes, Esther was an obscure nobody and she went to save the Jewish nation. But that's God's work. God's always been at work. Who made Esther? Who made you? Why are you here? Why do you have the talents that you have? Why do you have the mental capacity you have? Why are you this race? Why, you, why do you live here? Why do you have this job or not this job? At just a time like this, God could use an instrument like you for his purposes. Do you believe that? Or do we often think, if I just had more money, then I can do things for God. If I just lived here, then I can do things for God. If I went to this church, I could do things for God. Has God made a mistake to create you the way you are, to bring you to where you are now? That doesn't, mis- that doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. It doesn't mean we don't have to repent of our waywardness and our rebellion against God. He's always with us. He's always at work. I'm going to read a few verses from the Bible that just prove this point. Proves this point. He's always at work in the lives of those who trust him. If you are a child of God, he is always with you. If you are not a child of God, this is an invitation for you to know your heavenly father. And he's saying, come home. I'm always at work in your life. Trust me. So a few verses. Deuteronomy, one of the books of the Old Testament, uh, chapter 31, verse 6. And some of us need to hear this. So be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not panic before them. For the Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. He will never fail you nor abandon you. Be strong and courageous. Are we afraid? How could we be afraid if the God of the universe who created everything is all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing, is with us, with you, with me? What are we afraid of? So be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not panic. Romans chapter 8, written by one of the followers of Jesus. His name is Paul. In chapter 8, verses 38 to 39, it says this, And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No, no power in the sky, above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. How's your life going right now? You feeling like you're in the gutter? You feeling like there's nowhere to turn? Paul's saying, I'm convinced. I'm convinced after knowing this amazing God and what he has done through us in Jesus Christ and bringing us into relationship with him, that nothing, nothing on earth can separate his love from me. Nothing. Not your insecurities, 
not your financial insecurities, not your life situation. God is with you. God is with you. And he's given us a message to share with the world. He's given us a message of hope that we could know this God, that we could know this ever-present God, this providentially present, loving, good, amazing, faithful God. You can know him, and he calls you friend. The highest honor in a royal kingdom is to have a meal with the king or the queen. If you're invited into their home to have a meal, I would obviously be requesting poutine. It would be the greatest poutine ever. But that is the highest honor. If we're here to praise the picture of a king or a drawing or just read about him in history, We don't worship the picture when the king shows up and says, come and have dinner with me. You. You have dinner with me. That is the highest honor. That is what King Jesus is saying to each of us. By faith in what he's done in paying for our rebellion, our sin, that we can be adopted into his royal family. Mordecai adopted Esther. Jesus Christ adopted us at the price of his own blood. And he says, I have a place for you at my table. You don't have to share this chair. Like I tell to my daughters who who fight like little piranhas. There's a chair for you with your name on it. There's a room for you in my home. You. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've been through. Yeah, I do. And I paid for that on the cross. And three days later, I rose from the dead, showing that death has no victory. Death for the Christian is just the beginning of a delight in his kingdom forever. At his table, eating with the king. You're not just a pawn. You're his son. You're his daughter. He calls you friend. What? There's no other religion that says that. Allah doesn't know anybody. He's not a personal God. He's a false God. Buddha doesn't want to know you. Joseph Smith is dead. King Jesus invites you to his throne. He gives us this message. We call it the Great Commission. That if you're a believer here, you have a mission. You have a job description. Your job description in Matthew 20 is to go and make disciples of all the world. Teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is an outrageous job. Of all people? So you want me to talk to the Muslims and say that you have a false God and that you should follow King Jesus. And you want him to obey all that Jesus commanded. Yes. I want you to go in all the world. To the darkest corners of Africa. To the shores of Hawaii. 
to the frigid atmosphere in the Arctic. I want you to tell everybody about my son. I want you to make disciples of everybody. It's crazy. But the promise at the end is beautiful. What does he say? Matthew 28, verse 20. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amazing. He is with you now. God may feel distant. And if he feels distant from us, that's our fault. Because he says, I am always with you. He's not like, I'm going to go get some cereal and I'll be back. And he's going to show him five days. No, he is always with you in your mess, in our mistakes. I'm with you always. So when he makes his commandment to tell everybody about the good news of Jesus in a world that hates Jesus, in a world that hates Christianity, in a world that hates the Bible, this is the time we live in. We were made at such a time as this to share this amazing news louder. We don't soften the blow. We don't say there's no hell. There's no sin. There's no commitment. The grace of Jesus Christ, the cost for your forgiveness, came at the cost of God's only Son, at the cost of His own blood. That is a costly grace. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it. He was executed when he was 39. He was a German minister fighting against the Nazis and more importantly, trying to plant the seed of the gospel in the German people. He says, if there's a madman driving through your street, and he's a minister, he's a pastor, we should be doing more than just consoling the victims afterwards. We need to jump in front of the car. We need to jump in front of the car. Dietrich Bonhoeffer did that. Not literally. He was persecuted for his belief. We don't face that kind of persecution here. We can say and almost do whatever we want in Canada. That may be taken away soon, but it doesn't stop us. We go to jail. We preach the gospel to the guards and to the prisoners. We see a revival in the jail. They kill us. We go to heaven to the king. There's nothing anyone can do to us. What are we afraid of? What is stopping us from telling our sister, our brother, our parents, our cousin, to strangers about the king? Nothing. Is it pride? Is it insecurity? Maybe we need help in understanding how to share the gospel. The Northern Collective would love to help you do that. Maybe you just need help understanding the Bible. The Northern Collective can help you do that through the grace of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm going to close this with two implications in the story of Esther and how we see God working and using ordinary people like you and I to be instruments of his purposes. Firstly, we must understand that God is with us in the everyday mess of life. God is with us in the everyday stuff, in the everyday mess of life. When we're doing our taxes, the world's most boring thing ever. 
Unless you're my mother-in-law. She loves it. I don't. I dread this time. He's with us in that. We don't want to mess up the numbers. We want to say, thank you, God, for giving me an income. Thank you, God, for giving me a country and a city that is so free like this. God puts us in this place, in your life, for a reason. And we need the wisdom and the courage to learn that reason and to walk humbly in it. A preacher passed away a long time ago. I still listen to him. If you've never heard of Charles Spurgeon, I encourage you to listen to him. He says this, You have been wishing for another position where you could do something for Jesus. Do not wish anything of the kind, but serve him where you are. Serve him where you are. Why do we compare ourselves to other people? I do that all the time. In the world of online church and celebrity pastors, I look at what they're doing. This guy baptized 45 people. This guy saw a million people saved in one sitting. This guy has a big church. and We get jealous. We start comparing, and then we get bitter. We get cynical. Let's not do that. God has made you unique individual at just a time as this. You have a circle. You have a circle of influence. Live in that circle of influence. Don't wait for a better version of yourself. You don't want to be somebody else. You are uniquely made and loved by God. That's the first thing. We must recognize that God is in every day of our lives. Second thing. This is a new word for some of us. And maybe for some of us it's not, but it's difficult to explain. Intercessory prayer and fasting. Intercessory prayer and fasting. To intercede for someone is basically pleading on someone else's behalf. That's what Esther did on behalf of the Jewish people. We're about to be murdered. Genocide is about to occur. But Esther, she's like, if I have to die, I must die. I'm going to go before the king, even though it's against protocol. I'm going to plead. I'm going to intercede for the Jewish people to the king and say, please don't. Please don't. We must intercede for people. There's people in your life that don't know Christ. There's people in your life who need prayer. Do so through prayer. And do so through fasting. Maybe skip a meal or two once a week. Maybe for a day. Maybe get off your phone for a little bit. Fast the news. Whatever it is, you can use that time intentionally to pray and focus on God. Because we get in these habits that are just automatic. When you can't pick up your phone, when you're not putting food in your mouth, you just pause. You think, God, how would you have me to pray? I pray for my cousin who doesn't know you. I pray for my city who doesn't know you. Intercede for people. In Romans chapter 8, verse 34, who then will condemn us? No one. No one will condemn us. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us, interceding for us. Jesus 
is praying for you. Have you ever thought about that? He's pleading on your behalf to God. That's someone you want praying for you. Right? You call your friends, please pray for me. Okay, I will. But thank God that his son is praying for us. He's pleading for us. I don't know what you're thinking. All this is, could be confusing. Your life could be just, it feels like a breath away from ending. Look to God. Look to the Son. Look to the King. Who's loved you so dearly. Who's made you so uniquely at just a time as this. Use your life for the kingdom of God. And we will feast together in the kingdom with our King forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, there's just so much going on around us with conspiracies, with fighting, with politics. God, we just want to be focused. We want to see and know you clearly. And so God, if there's people here listening and there's people online listening who do not know you, God, I thank you that your son is pleading for them and that you can bring healing to lives. I thank you for the story of Esther and how she saved her people and have the picture of Jesus Christ and how he saved us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for making us. Help us to know you better every day, every moment. Amen.